You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Welcome to the DTB podcast for October 2010, volume 48, issue number 10. My name's Ike Yanachar and I'm editor of Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin. And I'm joined by David Fazakali, DTB's deputy editor. Hello. And Shelley Crow, an associate editor of DTB. Hi. First in this issue is our editorial entitled Back to the Future. David, can you say a few words about this? Yes. Uh, this editorial looks at the um, perennial problem of funding cancer drugs and particularly focuses on the uh, announcement by the coalition government of a, of a cancer drug fund and questions really what happens to the existing processes, particularly you know, the well-established NICE process, which you know, for, for all its uh, comments and faults perhaps that people perceive with it and the, the standard outcry that you get whenever a, a drug is is potentially uh, not allowed by by NICE is still a process which we've got used to and which at least allows uh, a level playing field for for funding decisions but suddenly thrown into the mix we have this question of ever cancer drug fund and how how this will affect the dynamics of, of choosing which drugs will be funded and which drugs won't be uh, and just to couple the or make it even more complicated we have the proposed changes to uh, PCTs and SHA configurations with the move of, of commissioning over to GP groups and really questioning what will happen to the existing processes which fairly well established with patient panels and decision-making bodies but what will happen in the, in the, in the new world um, and whether this raises the question of, of more postcode prescribing something we thought we'd, we'd left behind um, so really a, a mixture of back to the future and Groundhog Day. Okay, thank you. The first main article in this issue is entitled The Use of Specials in Primary Care. Now, specials may be an unfamiliar word to, to some people. Could you throw more light on what the article's about, David? Yes, uh, specials is sort of a minority sport mainly practiced by, by pharmacists and not, uh, not well understood, I, I think, by, by large uh, numbers of clinicians and, and the wider population. Specials generally refer to products that are made specially to order to meet the needs of an individual patient, so whereby normally uh, medicines are available as, as licensed products that have been through, a, through the uh, regulatory process and, and have approval. Uh, on occasion, a patient who, for whatever reason, can't use something that's already licensed may need something made specially for their, uh, for their requirements, such as uh, maybe a medicine that uh, isn't available as a liquid formulation for somebody who's having swallowing difficulties. So just to be clear, these are unlicensed products made for individuals? Unlicensed products made in units, manufacturing units that have been licensed as manufacturers of specials, but the products themselves are unlicensed and the regulator won't have examined them for uh, either safety or efficacy or quality. Okay, and so that on the surface seems like a good thing, tailoring products to people who need them. What are the issues that arise from that? Uh, I think there are probably three issues that we, we try and highlight. The first is obviously making people aware that actually these are unlicensed medicines, or although they may 
include an ingredient that is available in a licensed form, the actual product that is provided to patients is unlicensed. So a bit of awareness raising about the, the responsibilities of uh, GPs, prescribers in primary care, pharmacists around their roles and responsibilities, um, particularly around making patients aware that these are unlicensed products and, and getting consent. The second issue is is one of cost. Um, because of their, their bespoke nature, it's very difficult to find out what these things cost. Um, there is no published price list for specials. Indeed, the um, MHRA regulations have, have prevented people from publishing price lists for specials up to uh, very recently. That, that position has now changed, and manufacturers can now at least produce produce price lists and share them. But it's very difficult to get a, a, a view of what, what these things cost, particularly at the point of prescribing. Uh, and so what's, what has been discovered over time is that, that there is a vast price range uh, available for these, these products. And examples that we quote um, where range from standard sort of uh, special price of maybe £100 to examples of three or four thousand pounds for a single item so there's a, there's a there's a great variation in price and, and a bit of a mystery around what these things things cost so hopefully we'll help to illuminate some of these nooks and crannies I think so I think I think just putting a bit of a spotlight on the issue highlighting the price issue and also some practical recommendations about what to do before you think about going for a special uh, will help prescribers uh, think about the options before reaching for the expensive one. Thank you. The next main article is entitled OTC Tamsulosin for Benign Prostatic Hyperplasia. Shelley, can I ask you, what, what, what's this article concerning? Well, earlier this year, Tamsulosin was, became available for sale by pharmacists as a treatment for functional symptoms of benign prostatic hyperplasia. Uh, prior to this, it was only available as a prescription medicine. One of the advantages of tamsulosin becoming available as an over-the-counter product is that it may encourage men to seek medical advice sooner rather than later by presenting themselves to their pharmacists for a review of their lower urinary tract symptoms and then being subsequently, hopefully, be reviewed by their GP for a, a clear diagnosis of such symptoms. However, they may be a disadvantage, for example, if men are supplied with tamsulosin by their pharmacists prior to a diagnosis of benign prostatic hyperplasia being made and thus leading to unnecessary treatment of such symptoms that they may have. So clearly quite an involved set of circumstances to consider whether it truly does represent an advantage to have this drug available over the counter. Yes. The third article in this issue is entitled, Do Corticosteroids Improve Outcome in Meningitis? Now, this has been a vexed question uh, for a while, David. Uh, what light do we try to throw on it? As I say, a, a, a difficult question and one that's ever, evidence is still, still emerging. Obviously, the theory goes that um, corticosteroids, which we know reduce inflammation, may help improve outcomes by reducing inflammation associated with, with meningitis. Uh, and we know that meningitis is associated with, with long-term problems such as hearing loss. However, the, the, the great difficulty seems to be in unpicking the evidence in that many of the trials are very complicated or they're in 
difficult to interpret populations which may include uh, other comorbidities, patients infected with, with HIV uh, and different settings from high income to low income countries. So what we've tried to do is, is pull together what we know at the moment, uh, the, the latest trials and meta-analysis trying to address the question, particularly in, in adults, and separating out two groups, sort of the, the classical bacterial meningitis uh, as well as tuberculous meningitis and trying to come up with some, some feel for whether there is an advantage in using drugs such as dexamethasone uh, during meningitis and whether it does actually make a difference to uh, the long-term complications. And it seems to be a bit of an emerging picture that, that yes, it, it, it certainly does seem to help, but in certain subgroups and, and populations. So not, not clear-cut, but, but at least we show a bit, shed a bit more light on it. Thank you. And finally in this issue, there's a reminder about our campaign concerning Mixtard 30, a type of insulin which is due to be withdrawn from the UK market at the end of this year. We disagree with this decision and are running a campaign against it. To find out more, please go to our website where you can also have an opportunity to sign our petition against the move. To read these or any other DTB articles, please go to our website, dtb.bmj. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.